that was probably the point where I was like, this, you know, at that ice cream parlor, even on that game, seeing that secret was the point where I was like, oh man, video games are awesome. And I am going to play them forever. Hello, and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I chat with Chris Johnston, better known as CJ. CJ has a storied career from Electronic Gaming Monthly, or EGM, to Adult Swim, to his current work at Enhance, developers of Res, Tetris Effect, and their latest game, Humanity, a lemmings-like where you play as a dog controlling herds of humans through puzzles, which is the way the world ought to be. Humanity was just recently released on PlayStations 4, 5, VR, VR2, and Steam. I love chatting with CJ about his break into games journalism through a self-published zine and the various social aspects of video games. There's a lot of industry history and knowledge in this one. I hope you enjoy it. Chris Johnston, CJ, welcome to Why Button. Thank you for having me, Kyle. It's great to be here. Yeah, we uh, we go, I guess, quote unquote, go back a ways uh, on Twitter, now Mastodon, just kind of bantering back and forth, liking each other's tweets and stuff, but have never really had an official uh, you know, opportunity to, to chat. And so I figured, why not do it through this podcast? Uh, I think you might have some pretty good perspective on why we care about video games. And, uh, and so why not have you on the show? Uh, well, CJ, for those who don't know you, um, can you give a, a brief uh, background of yourself and, and what you're currently up to? Sure. Um, well, I'm a lifelong video gamer. And I, back in the mid-90s, got my dream job as a video game journalist at uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly Magazine, which was like the dream. It was like the top gaming magazine in the 90s. And uh, from there... I wrote about video games. I was the news editor for a few years, got to review games. And then I went into the development side of games and got a job initially doing flash games at Adult Swim, which is Turner Broadcasting, sort of Cartoon Network's late night programming block. They wanted to do games. And I thought, oh, that, you know, that would be an interesting thing to do. Flash was very nascent and there was a lot of like fun indie stuff happening there and i loved that style uh and the games that were coming out of that scene and at adult swim when we started doing flash games but then that quickly morphed into doing mobile games for iphone and ipad and then uh when steam sort of started opening up that storefront we started doing pc games then as consoles opened up uh, we started doing console games and uh Things just kind of snowballed from there. And then as that kind of ended, I took some time off for a little while and then joined Enhance, which is Tetsuya Mizuguchi's company. And they do Tetris Effect and Luminez and started doing user testing for a little puzzle game called Humanity, which comes out in a few weeks now uh, as we talk. So, yeah, kind of a, that's that's the short version. <laughs> of my ride. <laughs> I'm going to dig into some of that. Uh, cause that, I mean, just starting with EGM, it's funny. I, the, the, um, episode I did just prior to this one was with Robert Ashley. He runs the podcast, uh, a life well wasted. Are you familiar with the show? 
Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first episode of that show is about the death of EGM. And so I find it interesting, and this was not <laughs> by uh, design, but I find it interesting that you actually worked at EGM. At the time period that you worked at EGM, was that, did, did you work up until it shuttered or what was that that period of time that you were at, at the magazine? No, I didn't. I worked there, I started there in 1994 and worked there for a few months. I was still in high school at the time. And that kind of gives you an idea of where most video game magazines in the mid nineties found their writers. Uh, and then went back, uh, full time in 96. So, uh, from 96 to 2004, is when I worked there. So I wasn't wasn't there for the end. Was there for sort of the changing of the guard and a, a change in what video game magazines did from just being screenshots and tips to being more journalistic and you know the rise of the internet where you know people would scan your screenshots and post them immediately. So right around that time, like 2004, is uh, when I when I left and I did uh, jump to an anime magazine at the time. So I did. <laughs> I worked at an anime magazine for three years as that sort of DVD market was unfortunately in decline due to internet streaming, but uh, it was a fun a fun ride as well. You, you mentioned that that shift in, I guess the internet comes along and you're working at a games magazine. You just mentioned that, you know, folks would just post screenshots that are in the magazine. And then yeah. obviously we transitioned fully, completely, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, to what it is today. But was that sort of an impetus for leaving? Were there other reasons for getting out of EGM? Uh, there were other reasons. Um, I felt burnt out at the time. Mm. Like when you are surrounded by games even though i love video games even though i've loved video games for a long time i felt like i kind of done all that i wanted to here and maybe it was time for a new challenge so mm-hmm. you know one of my other passions was anime and video games and anime go hand in hand a lot of the time indeed and uh so when when that opportunity came up i jumped at it chance to do something totally new. Yeah. I think that's important to note too. You you mentioned getting going to EGM to begin with as a childhood dream. I think a lot of folks who were, or at least in, in our age range, and there may be a, a bit of an age gap here, not entirely sure, but I think we we're of a generation where magazines, gaming magazines were very prevalent to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dream of working at or writing for a magazine, for me, even it extended into the internet as well, like writing for a website, whether it was IGN or Polygon or something like that, you know, on the newer side, but that was sort of the dream I had in my head that like, I get to play video games all day and write about them and, and, you know, become, I don't not famous, but like, uh, become somebody in that, in that world. And that seemed incredibly exciting. Mm. What was it? I mean, maybe you align with that, but what was it about EGM or magazine writing for magazines, you know, to begin with, what was that the reason why that was a dream for you? Well, I always loved video games and thought, you know, it'd be fun to do that for work. But I am terrible at programming, (laughs) terrible at math. I can't draw. I'm not an artist or anything. So I I thought, like, what what could I do in this industry? And I read video game magazines and thought, well, that's a job. Like, writing reviews of video games is a thing. So I thought I could do that. And back in 1991, there was a magazine called Video Games and Computer Entertainment. And that that magazine had a column in the back written by Arnie Katz. It was all about fanzines and video game fanzines. And I read that column 
and was like, well, heck, I could do that, right? Like, I could I could make a newsletter or a zine, uh, and that could be my start. And so, I, I, yeah, I was 13, 14 years old at the time and thought, let's do this thing. I had my Apple II GS. I had Fred Writer as my word processor and uh, printed it out on an old image writer and like cut and pasted things and copied it off and sent it out to people. And that was kind of where things started. I began like sort of mimicking the writing that I was reading in video game magazines. And um, it just kind of went from there. Like I wrote what I thought people would be interested in reading or that I would want to read about it as a fan. And I I sent copies of that zine to Arnie Katz and all of the other magazines that were around. So I sent a copy to Steve Harris, who was the, the editor-in-chief VGM. I sent one, I think, to Game Fan and GamePro as well, just, you know, kind of on a lark. But then uh, EGM was located in the town right next to me growing up. So that was a bit of a lucky a lucky break there because they uh, they were interested in having me write for them for a while, actually, but I wasn't of working age yet mm. <laughs> during that time. So you're getting ahead of it, though. You're building that resume, you know, uh, <laughs> so to speak, right. I guess. That's right. That's right. And I was just having fun, really. Like it was fun to get into that scene and, and meet people, some of whom are still in the industry today, because like Chris Kohler also oh, yeah. did a zine at the time called Video Zone. And we got to know each other back then as well. So, and there are a couple of people who are still kind of peripheral around the industry that, that did zines at that time. Cliff Blazinski did a zine oh, as wow. well. <laughs> so it was very, uh, it was, it was its own sort of fun underground thing at the time. You mentioned this again, not by design by any means, but you mentioned video game and computer. Video games and computer entertainment. Yeah. Video games and computer entertainment. Hold on one second. I might, I'll edit this part out of the podcast, <laughs> but i I'm curious. I might actually have a copy. Hold on. Okay. So I subscribed to the Video Game History uh, Foundation. Um, yeah. Their their subscription service to send you old retro games and listener. If you, uh, I'll put a note uh, a link in the show notes. But it's it's worth checking out. Magazines keep coming up on this show, and I think uh, <laughs> people ought to check it out. <laughs> but Game Fan, Game Fan. I swear I had one of the. Oh, there, there you go. Is. There it is. I do have a video games and computer entertainment magazine. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Do you remember if you had that issue? I I'm sure know. I did. I think if that's pre-91, <laughs> uh, that was before my sort of eureka moment. But uh, but yeah, I definitely had that that issue. Are video games getting too gory? <laughs> From 91. That's hilarious. I didn't look that up when, when I had Robert on the show, but I had it in the back of my mind like I might actually have one of those. And then you, you sort of also mentioned with zines and whatnot, there was a, we, when I was talking with Robert and again, when you hear that episode, uh, if, if you're listening to the show, uh, we'll, we go on a, a couple tangents about music and it's mm. funny that mu- zines were very prevalent in the music world as well, like the punk rock world and whatnot. Yeah. And it's funny for you to say that here with games. That's not something I was aware of. Can you describe what that zine was? What, what was what was in it? What was it like? Like, what were you actually trying to, other than just your writing and mimicking the writers that you that you liked? Like, you, did you have access mm. to exclusive games? Were you just reviewing the stuff that you had on hand to play? Like, what was in some of those zines, and how many of them might, might have you, you know, you might might have had you put out? The first one I did was called the Bombardier, and it's because I liked that word. 
And <laughs> every good writer's trick is, uh, I like the word. So I like I the word. It. I'm using it. Yeah. Uh, and we had a uh, Japanese bookstore in the area too that I got like an issue of Famitsu from. Famitsu is like their, their weekly, at the time it was weekly, video game magazine. And I cut pictures out of it and screenshots out of it and like i said on the apple 2gs using a very simple word processor just like printed things out cut and literally like taped the paragraphs and the images onto a sheet of paper and then went to wherever had a copy machine whether it was the ace hardware down the street or or kinko's or office depot and you know copied a a few pages off and and sent those out. And initially it was just very simplistic stuff. And then like through the sort of zine community, I ended up meeting some other folks in the Chicago area who are also doing the same kind of thing. And we formed a zine called Paradox. And that was still on the Apple 2GS using mm-hmm. <laughs> like a more a more complex desktop publishing thing and printed out using like an inkjet printer and still kind of the same sort of cut and paste kind of thing some some of the time but yeah it was very low rent <laughs> oh yeah and i did uh probably more than a dozen issues of of paradox and that lasted sort of into my high school career as well and i took a uh, printing class in like a graphic, it was called like graphic design and printing. And back then it was like using desktop publishing, but then also we had printing presses in that area of the school where, you know, we'd work on things like dance flyers or like somebody's running for student council and we'd do posters for them. And then I did a, uh, an issue of paradox where it was two color, like two colors on the cover using this sort of, yeah, screen process and actually like printed it out on 11 by 17 paper and then folded it. And like, it was really nice, but it was like very handmade and different than, than just copying it off at a office depot. So it kind of, uh, ran the gamut from very simplistic stuff to more complicated printing jobs. Nice. And what was your distribution like? Like, were you, did you have folks that you were mailing this to, or were you just distributing around high school, around your town? Uh, initially just around the town. And then that video games and computer entertainment column had a, uh, an address. You could send a self, a self-addressed stamped envelope to uh, this address and get like a list of people who did zines and you could put yourself on that list as well. So I did that. And then people would, I I eventually got a write up in video games and computer entertainment actually. So then people would send me, yeah, it was a big, a huge break. And, uh, it was only like a dollar was what I was charging people for, uh, for the zine. It was more about, it was almost entirely about the enjoyment of putting it together than it was any sort of money-making operation, (laughs) kind of like podcasting. Yeah, but, just like uh, this podcast, honestly. I'm not, <laughs> not going to make a dime from this, I'm sure, but I'm enjoying doing it. Yes, exactly. I, got, I got it. <laughs> exactly. And I probably had like a, a couple hundred subscribers uh, towards the end of it. Yeah. I got a cease and desist letter from GamePro magazine. That's when you know you've made it. That's, that's the sign. 
Yes. We had done, uh, we did a, a parody cover of uh, Game Pro for one of our issues. And it was, uh, what if there were Disney characters in Street Fighter 2? So it was like a very similar cover to one of their Street Fighter covers, but with Disney characters. And then uh, that issue got scanned and put in a, a magazine and Game Pro's lawyers saw it and sent sent me a cease and desist as if we were going to do that every single issue, try to look like GamePro. It was just right. a one-off sort of joke thing, but, uh, but that was fun. <laughs> nice. To, uh, to fast forward a little bit now, mm-hmm. um, so I, I am curious about your transition from, from magazines, um, from you know, EGM and the anime magazine to actually working at a developer. I mean, yeah. you mentioned earlier that you wanted to work in games but didn't know what angle that would take and writing seemed like to be the, the, the most um, viable option. Um, not an artist, not an engineer. Um, so you went that route with magazines. But then all of a sudden you do find yourself working um, at studios and with and game developers yeah. in various capacities. We'll talk about that too. I'm curious what that transition was like for you. It was actually very natural because working on a magazine, I was used to due dates and deadlines and getting, you know, working with freelancers and getting content in on time and having calls uh, about feedback. And so transitioning into the production side was actually very natural. Like it was very similar. And we were working with, at Adult Swim, we were working with indie devs who, you know, maybe it was one or two people who were doing the game development. And I was, a, I was, if we were working with them, I was already a huge fan of their content, whether it was on like Newgrounds or, or Armor Games. So I already like knew they knew how to make a game. So, and when they would deliver builds, I would give them qualitative feedback, like, on the design or control or options or, or interface, things like that. And it felt like doing a video game review. It felt like what I was doing for the years prior. Like it didn't feel too different. I was just doing it in a different capacity. So it was actually a very smooth transition. (laughs) What what was your, what was your title at at Adult Swim? You might've mentioned it and I might've missed it, but. I initially started as a games producer and then, eventually became director of games creative by mm. the end. So I was there for 11 years. So did a lot of different things. Yeah. I ask because this is not necessarily a like games career podcast, although that tends to come up quite a bit. I think it's a great way to a great jumping off point anyway, for anybody who's actually working in games and I'm chatting with. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of folks that I think my, myself included, I'm, you know, just to put it out there um, who have always dreamed of working in games, but don't necessarily understand how they would fit um, working in games uh, other than writing for them. I think that's where a lot of people kind of start and think that writing for um, a magazine or, or a website is the only way in. Yeah. So to hear you talk about your, you know, direction in that, that pivot from not even pivot that transition from games writing and into uh, you know, working at adult swim and that being so close, closely related is fascinating. Yeah, it wasn't as different as I thought it was going to be, quite honest. But we were starting with Flash games, and I felt like that was like an easy way to start. Like, I don't think the transition would have been as easy if I'd gone from magazine editor to working at Microsoft or working at Nintendo. Like, I think that would have been a 
much different case. <laughs> uh, when you were at Adult Swim, were there notable releases that you worked on? Some of your maybe favorite favorite titles that you uh, worked on or moments at Adult Swim? Yeah. You know, I got to work with a lot of really interesting folks. I worked with Flambeer. I worked with um, Maddie Thorson, who's the creator of Celeste. And did a game called Robot Unicorn Attack, which oh, became kind of a that huge... Game. <laughs> That's with the Erasure soundtrack, right? With the Erasure song, oh, yeah. That was an amazing experience. Uh, worked on Amateur Surgeon was one of the mobile games that we worked on. Did three of those. And uh, later on, I got to work with Double Fine, which was also a dream on a game wow. called Headlander yep. uh, that unfortunately kind of bombed, but it was a great <laughs> experience. It was a great project, and uh, I, I loved working with Double Fine. So. They seem like such a cool group of folks to work with. I'm, I'm almost finished with the, the large documentary that came out um, about Psychonauts 2. And I mean, I, it, sure, I'm sure it's challenging at any studio and you're going to mm. have personality conflicts and all that stuff. But I mean, on the whole, they just seem like such a good group of folks, uh, you know, great hearts, great minds, great leadership in Tim. And, you know, I can't imagine like how cool that experience was. It was a dream. <laughs> I had to pinch myself that I was working on a game for, with Double Fine. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, so transitioning now into uh, your, your current work at Enhance, mm -hmm. I, I think the big right now, actually, you, you all are, are gearing up for, I think, a pretty big release uh, coming out in Humanity. But that game looks wild. Now, you know, it's no different than I think any of the other games that Enhance has, has put out, but um, sort of like a Lemmings-esque there's something very dark about it. I can't put my finger on like just controlling all these mindless people. It's almost yeah. a little, has a little bit of like an inside vibe to it. Uh, and the fact that there's just like these, you know, again, mindless folks wandering around. But um, yeah. how have you found your time at Enhance? If you can say. Oh, I love working at Enhance. I, uh, and this is another, <laughs> I feel so lucky to have had like, so many dream jobs in, in my career, like sometimes I pinch myself, like I can't believe it, that I'm working with such amazing people. And uh, when the enhanced opportunity came up, I jumped at that. I was like, yes, I definitely want to work on whatever you got, Tetris Effect, Luminous, whatever, whatever you're doing. I want to be a part of that because that sounds amazing. And, you know, it's sort of a, it's a small operation. It's a small shop. It's an indie really. And I have always enjoyed working with indie developers and thought this is, this is perfect. Yeah. Did, did they come calling for you or did you go after them? They did. They came calling and they were working on humanity and, uh, humanity is an action puzzle game and it's sort of broken down by stages. And that kind of a game is very difficult to play test and like get feedback on because once you've figured out the puzzle, you're no longer a good tester. Right. And so they were looking for somebody who could run user tests for humanity and, uh, and give feedback. And I jumped at that chance and yeah, ran user testing on humanity and like ran people through the game. I've watched 
dozens of people go through the game and uh, recorded their gameplay and, you know, gave feedback. And uh, hopefully it's going to be a better game for all of that. And some of that feedback has certainly influenced the design choices of the development of the game. So, yeah, I, I feel I feel lucky. It, it def, looking at just the trailers of humanity, I haven't played any of the demos or anything like that. It actually came up. Uh, Christian mentioned it on the, on the first episode of the show is one of the games he's really looking forward to and loved the experience, but it seems like looking at it, there's an element of, you can play through these puzzles. And then there's also an element of like games creation sandbox type of aspect to it. I imagine, yeah. and I don't know if your role is directly associated with QA, but QAing or even working through the user experience of something like that seems like a near impossible feat. I'm having the same sort of anxiety spike when I uh, when I watch the latest Breath of the Wild 2 trailer, or Breath of the Wild 2, I'm still calling it that, Tears of the Kingdom trailer. Mm. It, like looking at all the different possibilities and be like, how do you survive as a QA tester or anybody who's trying to build this experience that seems incredibly flexible? Like, can you speak to that a little mm. bit with humanity and like it being a, a, a game that you can actually build yourself or, or manipulate? Yeah. And I want to say, yeah, it's really hard, (laughs) (laughs) harder than I think the development team even imagined. You know, a lot of that stuff was sort of going on before I joined the company, but they created like the user generated content piece of it, uh, stage creator piece of it were the tools they were using to build levels themselves. So they sort of had something there, the framework of something. And then it took uh, it, certainly a massive, <laughs> a massive amount of work to like make that something that could be user facing as well. And I think they did a fantastic job. I mostly gave feedback on the finished stages, not so much the stage creator, but uh, you know, during the last bits of development, there's been a lot of uh, QA going on. Enhance has a really awesome community of Discord moderators that are that are really like instrumental in like doing some of the final work on that. They're trying to break it actively. And we ran a couple of betas where people were trying to break it actively as well. And that, that has been fun to watch, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's turned out really well. Like it is a Herculean task. Like it yeah, indeed is way more complicated than we even thought. And especially the user generated content piece, like making a browser that people can look through levels and then moderate that content too, because you know, people are going to make offensive stuff. Sure. That's like a great it's, point. it's been like years of like walking through, okay, well, what do we do if this happens? What do we do if that happens? Like <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it, it's quite an effort. So that brings us up to speed today. I think on the side too, uh, not not only your professional, I think you can call it maybe professional too, but you also are the the host of a of a podcast, Player One Podcast. Um, that podcast has been going on since two thousand six. Y'all are almost at eight hundred episodes. Almost at nine hundred now. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Up to nine hundred. Well, thank yeah. you for the correction. Jeez. <laughs> 850 something at this point. Yeah. Uh, Have you been on that Jesus. show the whole time? Did Did you start it? I started it, yeah. Wow. I started it with uh, another guy from EGM, Greg Seward. And at the time, we lived in different places in the U.S. Like, I had gone to Texas to work on the anime magazine, and he was in North Carolina at the time working on um, Robotech games. (laughs) And 
we would play online multiplayer games together all the time and talk over Xbox Live and thought this was this was at a time where like one up yours was going on and there were a couple of video game podcasts and we were like, you know, we could do that. Like we sit here on Xbox Live and chat about games. Like, why don't we just record that and and put that out in case anyone's interested in listening? And then basically that's what we did. We used uh, SOCOM headsets that we got, you know, free with the PS2 game and uh, started recording it. And we started that in 2006. And I think we've only missed something like three weeks over the wow. entire run of episodes we've done it every week yeah so that is impressive yeah incredible <laughs> will you keep it going in another another uh what three years to hit your 20 uh, 20 year mark probably gas in the tank <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah, yeah i think so i mean i i think with our show it's interesting because we're all friends and we are all former co-workers and we just use the podcast as an excuse to hop on and talk about games and yeah catch up with each other so that's really we record it sure and we release it but that anybody's listening is sort of a secondary thing yeah well anybody listening to this can see that you are or hear rather that you uh, you know are emphatic about games it's it's something that you know has been a massive part of your life since even i mean from what i can tell so far and i imagine it's even before then but like high school pre-high school with the zine and whatnot all the way through to today it is it is your life um yeah. uh, more or less i'm sure i mean that's not entirely true i'm sure you've got a lot of other things going on in your life, but <laughs> it is a big, big part of your life. You have fulfilled a, a dream, a childhood dream of working in the space in various capacities, which is incredible. Congratulations. But I'm really curious about sort of where it all started. Like what was that first experience with a game that sort of triggered this for you? Um, or, or where did you get this thought that this is sort of how, what I want to pursue at such an early age? Yeah, well, my first experience with video games was at an ice cream parlor called the Purple Cow in on the south side of Chicago. And my family would go there, you know, a weekend, a month, maybe, I don't know, like whenever there was uh, good grades to celebrate or like some someone wanted ice cream, we would go and get ice cream or there was a birthday place did birthdays too and they had arcade games in this ice cream parlor as many establishments did back in the early 80s and they had like a donkey kong machine a popeye machine star wars and they had crystal castles and that was like where i got into games it was at that ice cream parlor putting quarters in and and playing and there was one weekend we went and uh, I, I played the Crystal Castles game. That's a game where you use a trackball and you're kind of collecting these gems mm -hmm. in each stage and avoiding enemies. And it's sort of a isometric three quarters perspective and very interesting looking game. And I was terrible at it. <laughs> but there was <laughs> another person there who was like awesome at it. And this person, mm -hmm. like they were getting so far in this game and i was just in awe of that right and then they showed me this trick to skip levels cheater and <laughs> i was like oh all right there's a level skip trick this is fantastic so yeah he showed me like this area of the the stage where you could like go behind the geometry and like get to a warp that would warp you like 10 stages 20 stages ahead and so that was probably the point where i was like this 
you know, at that ice cream parlor, even on that game, seeing that secret was the point where I was like, oh man, video games are awesome. And I am going to play them forever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how this person knew how to do that, but, uh, but they did, man. Maybe, I mean, there were video game magazines at the time. Maybe it was in something like that, but. Yeah, a uh, magazine and word of mouth and stuff gets around. Did you know you yeah. could go behind the, go behind this wall and <laughs> you get to level 20, you could save all your quarters. I know. I know. It's crazy. And so from that moment, and I have to say too, I'm flashing back to the, the arcades with trackballs. Those ah. things always pinch my hands and the yeah. trackball, I hated that. Oh, it was the worst. Yeah, that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've definitely bettered our in, most of our input devices, I think. We don't ever need to go back to trackballs. I don't think so. No, <laughs> I would not prefer a trackball. <laughs> yeah. So that's your first like core sort of memory of, of really getting into games and seeing somebody else progress and opening your eyes to what's possible, uh, mm. what's possible here. Um, from Crystal Castles, are there, uh, you know, what are maybe a handful of games that you maybe had some of those other moments in uh, that, that moment of awe or just eye opening um, throughout your life? Could be mm. when you were, were a kid and getting you into this, uh, into this world or even at a professional level. Yeah, I think... I'll start with Super Mario Brothers, of course. You know, from the time I played Crystal Castles to Super Mario Brothers, the whole video game market crash thing happened. And there was a time where or a couple of years where I really didn't play video games mm. and focused on computers instead. But I saw Super Mario Brothers first at a friend's house. I was over there for a Cub Scout meeting and... He had an NES and Super Mario Brothers, and it just floored me. Like, I couldn't believe the graphic fidelity of the game and just the style of the game and everything about it just wowed me. And that was the point where, you know, I started begging my parents for an NES. And luckily, they didn't hold out for long, but... uh but it was hard to find initially. And yeah, that was the point where it's like, oh my gosh, video games are back, right? Like there was the crash that happened. I hadn't been playing anything and then now video games are back. So I want to I wanna get back into them as much as possible because the graphics looked better than anything on computer. Like mm -hmm. forget these graphic adventures, King's Quest games. Like I'd much rather play Mario. So that was a big one. And after that, I think, you know, I was there for, I was at the E3 where Mario 64 got unveiled and Ooh. that was a big moment to see that and to see the analog control. Yeah. What a cool experience. Yeah. That was there. interesting. Yeah. Be at that E3 and play that. And, but I think it wasn't until like Zelda Ocarina of Time where I really, saw the power of what 3d games could do like i never really thought 3d games were all that impressive mario 64 was excellent but then you got a lot of like clones of that style mm. that were okay but they didn't really have the depth and then ocarina of time came out and that was really something to get excited about and actually that game is why i'm into the zelda series at all <laughs> uh now because i think 3d zelda is really where things kicked off and got amazing and uh i stayed up it came out right before thanksgiving i bought my copy and i was up until 4 a.m on sunday 
after Thanksgiving, like playing and finishing Ocarina of Time. Like I, I had not for a long time, I had not played a game for like that, that religiously in that many days straight where, uh, all I did was that, but Ocarina of Time came out and it just felt like I had to finish that game in the first weekend or I wouldn't finish it at all. (laughs) I don't even know if I got past like the first the the kid area of uh or, or the kid portion of the game in the first week weekend let alone month that's uh quite impressive yeah yeah <laughs> i used to i used to guide okay i was i was gonna ask that's <laughs> if you weren't uh yeah if you did hadn't you were certainly destined to, to be in games at that point that was your yeah yeah the deal and then uh Another big game, another big gaming moment for me was when Sea of Thieves came out. I'm a big fan of Sea of Thieves, which is rares, open world, shared world, pirate adventure game. And that game really showed me that video games can be much more of a like social experience and also like just a you can log in to a game and not know what's going to happen. And you can go on an adventure with your friends and it could just evolve from there. And I've met so many people who are now real friends through that game that had never, I'd never had that experience before now. And I'd never played a game. So we're going on five years for Sea of Thieves. I've never played a game like that every week, like wow. constantly, consistently. Yeah. Like like that game, so yeah, I think I'm over four thousand hours in that game now, and oh my gosh, it's uh, it became quite an addiction for a little while. Yeah, the word addiction, though. I mean, is is that? I mean, is it necessarily a bad thing at that point? I mean, it seems like you're it, this is fulfilling something for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it was fulfilling. I think it was an addiction in that I watched Twitch streams of Sea of Thieves all the time. And like when I wasn't playing, I was thinking about that game. And but it also like made me think about games as a way to build a community around something. Right. Like I enjoyed interacting with the Sea of Thieves community so much that I thought, you know, any game can have or should have this type of open, welcoming community that uh, anyone can jump in and feel like they're going to find someone worth playing with or that they're they're not less than anybody else right and there are a lot of like first person shooters a lot of competitive multiplayer games that don't have that feeling and i felt like here's a game that's doing this like why don't other games do that like i'd love to join the community for another game that i'm totally into that is that gives me that same feeling so even like working on humanity and that has a user generated content piece like i am trying to advocate for building that kind of community around humanity and can we attract a type of player who will create levels or even just play play levels that'll come back and you know find something about the enhanced discord community that they really enjoy and like find a place where they feel like they're welcomed so yeah, I was going to ask that about humanity. I mean, that seems like the user-generated content 
you know, I don't know if you would call it a game, not games as service, but like a live service type of game. But you have that, that sort of community that's around like, Hey, you all build these things and let other players play them. And you saw that with like Mario maker and whatnot. And some of those um, games actually take off beyond just the community itself. You start seeing people post their levels on social media and very unique things start happening or unique things that can happen within the game end up being shared on social media can tend to go viral and whatnot because of how unique this game is or what it's allowing a user to do and how creative people can be with it. You saw this with Breath of the Wild. Again, you've seen this with Mario Maker and um, there's countless others. Um, Is there any part of you all at Advance that are hoping that that might be something that happens or is there a social aspect to this, like social sharing or is it all within the game itself? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there is some social sharing that's going to happen within our discord server and we're trying to figure out how to make it work outside of that too. Um, you do get a stage ID for something that you create that can be shared on social media, but we are thinking of like ways to make that even easier and like give you a, a thumbnail graphic of your stage and things like that. But got it. It's turned out harder than you'd think to to make that kind of thing happen. Like, and there are a lot of user generated content games that that don't have that, and I understand why now because it's difficult and there's no sort of out of the box. This is how you do this thing to you know use as a template. So we're kind of we're trying things and seeing what works. And I I do hope we did a we did a demo in March at the beginning of March and had an amazing amount of community creations just like i i wasn't sure like how many people would really get into it but we were really surprised at how many folks did and what kind of levels they ended up creating some of which used mechanics we didn't expect and didn't even know were possible so like that kind of thing i'm really excited about and i i am hoping fingers crossed that we are able to nurture a community of people who want to come back all the time and create levels, play levels and talk about the game. Like that's the dream for me. Um, so going just quick review of the games that you shared, those moments of awe, those, those eye opening games uh, for you. I, I'm, I'm counting crystal castles in there because I feel like that's where, that's where it all started. Mario one, possibly Mario 64, but more so uh, Ocarina of Time for 3D games and then Sea of Thieves. And I think all yep. of these have, a, there's a different sort of uh, appeal to each one of these. Crystal Castles being the the moment that you saw what was maybe possible within games, that it's not just that linear experience, that something else can be happening here and seeing somebody else progress in the game. Uh, the mystery, I guess, of, of what games can, can hold within. Mario 1 being... I have this console sitting in my house. The graphical fidelity is far and above um, what I have on my PC, and I am ready for the future here. This is this is something amazing. Ocarina of Time, we talked about 3D and what it means, means to make a 3D game. Up until that point, there 3D had been tried, tested, uh, and and you know, it, it was around. It was around in arcades, it was around on the PlayStation, but nobody really nailed it like Nintendo did. It's actually interesting to hear you say Ocarina is the model rather than Mario. I kind of think it the other way around, but to mm-hmm. each zone and then see if these being community. So with all of these, there's not one specific thing that really I think you are speaking to uh, as a reason for your enthusiasm, love, passion of games, unless you can tell me what that that thing is. is. Is there a through line that you see throughout all of this? Is there a reason why this is so, you know, you get so excited about this stuff? 
there's absolutely a through line. And I think it is the social currency of games, like talking about games with other people, like that person who showed me that trick in Crystal Castles, like, and watching somebody else play an arcade game at Chuck E. Cheese and looking at the hint book for Ocarina of Time and like talking about that with co-workers and with people on the internet. And then, you know, a game like Sea of Thieves, where I've met people in real life now that I would call my real friends. And it's, it's, I think it's all social, you know, having seen Super Mario Brothers at my friend's house and, uh, you know, trading codes back and forth and talking about the minus world. And here's the code to Mike Tyson with my schoolmates and, like to me, video games are not only sort of an outlet for um, escaping reality, but enhancing reality and, you know, having a social experience. I, it's, it's, I'm glad you say that. And I think that's may not be uh, a surprise to folks who, you know, are very passionate about games and follow the industry and play a lot. But I think outside of, of those walls, a lot of people still see games as a very solitary, isolated experience. Mm. Even if it's multiplayer and whatnot, you're sitting in your room or, you know, wherever hunkered down in front of a TV or, or a computer, you know, monitor or something like that. I think there's there, you're right. There is so much more to this, that it carries a conversation. Everything you just said aligns very closely with my own experience. I mean, it was the fun of sharing your experience on the schoolyard. It was talking about that at your, you know, at your job with your coworkers who might also be playing the same games that you are Mm -hmm. um, and sharing that enthusiasm there. And then also you have communities on Twitter or discord or Mastodon or whatever, who are sharing their enthusiasm or, Oh my gosh, look at this cool thing I did. Or did you know you could do this? Or now there's just so many games games that it's people talking about these experiences that you may never have, but you get a chance to watch and see and go, wow, that looks like a really cool experience. I don't have the time in my life to maybe yeah. play that game or, or <laughs> you know, uh, but it's there and that looks like a very cool novel thing. And you can take from that and apply it to maybe other experiences or, or um, creative endeavors in your world too. So yeah. I think that's, that's a, I mean, that's a great reason. The, the social aspect of games is certainly there. It is far, uh, far from, I think a very solitary experience. It can be, as you said, an escape, but I think there underneath that there is, it generates such a, a a much larger conversation and now a conversation that permeates into film and TV and, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, not just making shows about games, but you hear, um, I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso, but in Ted Lasso, they dropped a nod to breath of the wild. And there's, I mean, and Wario, there's a couple different, uh, video game references there. It's on Saturday night live and Pedro Pascal, you know, you know, as Mario or whatever it is. Um, there's just all kinds of, of, you know, narrative. And, and I think a lot of that too is probably, you know, it's just a medium that we grew up with. Uh, and now it's permeating other lives is that that generation gets older and is working in these professional capacities. It's obviously there, but um, yeah. it is, it is part of our social fabric, I think at this point. Yeah, I think so. And I, f- I feel like I'm lucky in that my parents encouraged me <laughs> to play games. Like they didn't, they limited my screen time, but they thought it was, you know, a hobby. They had hobbies. I have video games as a hobby. So they never discouraged me from playing. And, you know, when I started working with other people who play video games, there was definitely no discouragement that I should stop playing games. Uh, and, you know, everybody that I've known, all my friends 
play games uh, and I've never had relationships where it's been like looked down upon. And I feel very lucky about that because I do know folks who have had these sort of nerdy, geeky passions that get looked down upon by their significant other or whatnot. And I never understood that. Like, <laughs> like even if I'm not into something, like why would I want to discourage something that makes this other person happy? Like I don't see the benefit of that. So, yeah. you know, you can be in anything if you're into reality television or if you're into the real housewives of Atlanta, like, you know, you do you like, <laughs> who am I to judge that? So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Are you excited about anything uh, in the future, like the future of games? Is there something that you, you're thinking about? Like, maybe it's this social aspect we're talking about here, but um, mm. I, I guess the question is, what excites you about the future of video games? Yeah, I, so I, it's funny, like I always look at, whenever there's a generation shift, you get the people who are like, oh man, games are never going to look better than this. And I feel like <laughs> I have, I have been through enough of those generational shifts where I don't think I have ever said that actually, because I always know that, yes, it's going to look better than this. Like PlayStation 5 looks great now. It is going to look like there is going to come a time, probably not far off, where things look better. And I can't wait for that time. Like I am excited about that time where things continue to look better and better and better. And, you know, back in the day, we would play these games and it would be our imaginations like filling in the gaps for why things don't look realistic. And things have just gotten more and more realistic looking. And, you know, we have VR now and uh, which I love. Now, now that VR is of a high enough frame rate where I don't get motion sickness uh, playing, <laughs> <Sure. laughs> it's uh, it's fantastic. But I'm what I'm excited about in games is just seeing that progression. Like, how far can we go with things? And you know, video games for me are all about being able to experience something that I would never do in real life. And, you know, whether that's be a pirate or whether that's in like a social deduction game or, you know, maybe I'm in an RPG, like playing something or, you know, a survival horror type of thing, something I would never actually want to be involved with in real life. Right. Uh, a little bit of having a safe that experience. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I love that for, games it can be such a emotional experience as well like you can have games that make you feel a certain way and you can have a connection with them in ways you don't have with other mediums and i think that's probably what excites me the most about games and just for the future of games that's great is there other than humanity are there games you're looking forward to i try to not look too far into the future like i like to be surprised by <laughs> by games that I don't even know are coming out, but I'm excited about like Spider-Man two. And I think that'll be fantastic. I'm looking forward to tears of the kingdom in a big, big way as well. Uh, in, in part because of all of the sort of ways that you can freestyle and create your own vehicles and weapons and things like, I think that's great. And even though I'm not the type of person that loves crafting or cooking in a game, like you say, right. crafting or building to me. And I'm like, I'm out, yep. forget it. Base Man. building, not interested, but there's something about this sort of, I'm running around Hyrule and I'm making these weapons out of two things like that excites me in, way, in ways that other crafting games don't. So, uh, so yeah, Breath of the Wild, well, Tears of the Kingdom, 
and uh, Spider-Man 2 are probably the biggest name things, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of little indie projects that come out that I'm going to be interested in too. It's never ending. There's just so much. So much just keeps coming around. I need to play. There is. Everybody's talking about Dredge right now and I haven't touched it. Uh, oh, that's like Dredge. the big thing. I've gotten to a point now where I'm like, I'm just going to wait to see like what, what is popping off. I can see all, watch all these trailers and see all this, the new stuff that's coming. And it's great to your point. Like, but looking too far ahead, it's, I don't know what's going to be worth my time or while. And at some Mm. point it's like, I'm just going to wait to see what everybody's talking about. And then I'll jump on the bandwagon. Like no harm doing that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Or use like game pass or PlayStation plus, like what's new on there and play that. Like, uh, I like to play, uh, all types of games except for sports games. Uh, I loved the arcade sports games of the late nineties and early two thousands, but since everything's gone more simulation, it kind of dropped out of that. But I find I'm an omnivorous gamer. I'll just play everything and I don't finish a lot of games, but I still love playing whatever is coming out. So like I have so many games up in the air, like Hi-Fi Rush and Dead Space and uh, Dredge is another one that I'm going through. And I just started the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters and there's all these games and then Tears of the Kingdom's coming out and you have Advance Wars uh, Reboot Camp and all this stuff is just like, I can't believe how many games we have and how many of different genres and uh, made for different types of players that we have. It's, I think it's truly a golden age of gaming. Like I know a lot of people are down on live service games and all that, but, uh, but I think we are living in an amazing time for games. There's just so much choice and so many good entries in all types of genres. And so many places to play too. That's another theme that comes up on the show quite a bit is the prevalence of, you know, we all have a phone in our pocket and they're just so much there. There's so much good stuff, whether you're into mobile gaming, quote unquote, or not, like there are amazing experiences on there. Um, It's not just, you know, Angry Birds and Candy Crush. It's, you know, playing Florence or Sword and Sorcery or, you know, you name it. Um, There's a a game that uh, got me through... um, when my, when my daughter came, you know, there's endless nights of just every two hours I'd get up with her and feed her and rock her to sleep and all that sort of stuff. And now mm-hmm. I'm forgetting the uh, Loco Looper is a game that it's just a puzzle, simple puzzle game, but is stitching together um, like a, a train track. That would be a perfect loop. Basically it's uh starts simple and then it gets uh, incredibly difficult. Um, it's, it's <laughs> a very, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very good game. Um, but again, there's just so much out there and in so many places you can play. No longer do we have to make a trip yeah. to the arcade, right? And hope we have enough quarters to to get us through an hour. I love it. I really love it. I think, yeah, there's no better time for games. Like on EGM, we did like a couple different covers where it's like, there's too many games. And I look at that and it's like, you fast forward to now and there's really now we have too many games. like 98 was a great time for games like some of those years were great but man we are just like spoiled for choice on any platform anywhere you want to play there's so much stuff i I think we're lucky yep um on that note unless there's anything else you want to bring up um before we we close out uh i i think that's a it's a that's a very positive place to end this uh this episode CJ, where can people find you if they want more uh, more CJ uh, in their life, or and what should they be looking out for in terms of, uh, I guess, humanity, which is your big your big project right now? 
Yeah. Uh, well, you can find me at Superpack on Twitter, and I'm also at Superpack on Mastodon.social. And I host the Player One Podcast every week, and that's at PlayerOnePodcast.com or P1 Podcast on Twitter. And Enhance is Enhance EXP, Enhance underscore EXP on Twitter. And then the Humanity account is Humanity Game. Humanity comes out on PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, and Steam on May 16th. And uh, it's also a VR game. It's a VR optional game. And yeah, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, I, again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a, a great opportunity for us to, to finally actually meet and chat. Uh, I know we've been, I've been meaning to do that for a long while now. So uh, again, I appreciate you hopping on uh, over to Y button and, uh, and talking to me about why you care about video games. Thanks very much, Kyle. CJ was such a wonderful guy to chat with. And he's a great follow on Mastodon and Twitter with lots of solid takes and insights. I wish him and the team at Enhanced good fortune with humanity. Reviews for the game have been overwhelmingly positive. I still can't get over the idea of creating a self-published gaming zine. It goes to show that if you love and want something enough, sometimes you just gotta do it yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. The easiest thing to do might be to share the website whybutton.online. It includes links to most podcast platforms. If you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. You can also find me on Mastodon at kylestar with two R's at mastodon.social. This episode was produced by the wonderful AJ Filari. Our theme song was written by Childstar, which is me, featuring my friend Scott Wilkie. You can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button. And remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?